0: Originally, Jeff contacted me a couple months ago. He gives you lots of lead time, and he said, would you like to speak? Uh, I'm going to be away for a national convention, which I'm going to be at as well, but Barb and I leave tomorrow for that. And I said, sure, what, what passage? And he said, oh, it's a great one. It's Leviticus 25. It's on the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. And I thought, oh, that'll be fantastic. Um, as you know, we've been trying to show christ in the old testament and when he walked with the two disciples on the road to emmaus he explained how he fulfilled all of the old testament and i thought well that uh, the year of jubilee that'll just be wonderful to talk about how christ fulfills that and whoever speaks next week for you um will get to do that then hurricane fiona came and i got an email from him saying well everything got pushed back a week Uh, you now get an eye for an eye thanks Um, but anyway all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable right and so uh, we find ourselves uh, at the end of Leviticus 24 this morning Um, we're in the home stretch of Leviticus Um, Jeff's not here you can say hallelujah or whatever you would like to that but, uh, but I really do think next year when we're doing the book of Hebrews, you'll find that the time we invested in Leviticus will have been very profitable for understanding that. Um, in First Peter 2.14, Peter says that the primary purpose of government is to punish those who do evil and for the praise of those who do good. That's sort of the basic uh, basics of good civil government is that they encourage good behavior, they discourage bad behavior. Um, that sort of first base for good government. Um, some of you may remember in 2011 a man named Andres Brevik, or maybe you're too young for that, or maybe you're too old and you don't remember 10 years ago, but if you're... <laughs> Somewhere in the middle, you re- might remember that name. Andres Brevik was a man from Norway. On July 22nd, 2011, he set off a car bomb in downtown Oslo uh, that killed eight people. And then he drove to a youth summer camp and shot and killed 69 more people, uh, 77 in total. Uh, In 1971 Norway had done away with its life-in-prison laws, so the maximum sentence he could get and which he did receive was 21 years. Um, Norway, similar to Canada, you're eligible for parole after serving half your time, so after killing 77 people in 2011, Mr. Brevik is up for parole this year. Interesting, in 2016, he won a lower court ruling that said his rights were being violated. They were searching his cell too often and his cell wasn't nice enough. It was a one bedroom apartment. You can see pictures of it online. It's Norway, so it kind of looks like Ikea furnishings, right? But he won a court ruling, it was later overturned, but he originally won a a, a court ruling that said his rights were being violated. I'm not here to discuss uh, criminal justice this morning, but if you're like me, most we long for a just society. And when we hear a a story about crime and punishment, most of us will either say, yes, what what happened there? Well, that's right, and that's good, and that's proper. Or you say, gee, that doesn't seem quite right to me. Um, And with that as a backdrop, if you turn to Leviticus 24, What we have this morning really from verses 17 to 23 is a continuation of uh, last week. Uh, Jeff kind of began the message for us. And uh, so we're gonna read that passage, but I think we'll read beginning at verse 10, the passage that Jeff read as well, because um, it's really necessary to get the context of our 17 to 23 portion. So beginning in verse 10, it says, Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomoth, which interestingly, by the way, the, um, that name means peaceful you probably see shalom in there well shalom means peaceful so it's kind of a bit of an irony that uh, the lady whose name was peaceful her son started a fight um, i think we're supposed to get that that irony and uh, she was the daughter of uh, dibri of the tribe of dan and they put him in custody till the will of the lord should be clear to them then the lord spoke to moses saying bring out of the camp the one who cursed and all who heard him Uh, let them lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying whoever curses his God shall bear his sin whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death and all the congregation shall stone him the sojourner as well as the native when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death and then the passage that we're going to look at particularly this morning beginning in verse 17 Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded. So this young man had committed blasphemy, and Israel knew that, obviously. They put him in custody, but Israel was a relatively young nation, not a lot of legal precedent yet, and um, plus he was only half Jewish, and so Jeff brought that out. Last week, Israel was kind of uncertain as to what he'd broken the third commandment. Uh, Exodus 20, verse seven says, "'You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, "'for the Lord will not hold him guiltless.'" who takes his name in vain. But what should be the punishment for this? They weren't sure. And so he was put in custody till God gave clear indication of that. And so in from 17 to 23, God gives some general legal principles. And these are guidelines for the courts of Israel, for the judges of Israel. How do you determine Um, cases. Um, Most of Leviticus is about religious regulation and sacrifices and temple stuff, but on occasion, like the passage here, um, it has to do with establishing a legal code for Israel. Um, God was taking his people out of 40 years of desert wandering and they were going to become a what we would call a civilization and to be a civilization you needed rules right god did not redeem israel in order for them to be lawless in order for them to have anarchy reign they would be governed by laws and this is an example of them and uh, what God gives us here, we get an idea of what's important to him. And so some principles that we might glean out of that passage that we read. The first one would be that God's law is just. Uh, In Deuteronomy 4.8, Moses said, And what nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as this law I set before you today? Historians tell us that Israel was light years ahead of the nations around them. This was incredibly different than what anyone have. We can sometimes today recoil from this a little bit because it's what's called um, in the Latin, there's a legal phrase for it, lex talionis, the law of equivalent retaliation. It's retributive justice. Um, And it's actually meant, and to us today, we might not know this at first glance, it was a a reducing measure. It was a moderating, constraining rule meant to curb excess retaliation. Uh, Left to ourselves, we want to retaliate over and above the offense, right? Um, In Genesis 4.23, remember that guy named Lamech, and he said to his family, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is revenged sevenfold, then Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. He said, you know, if a guy hits me, I'll kill him. And if a guy does some damage to me, I'm going to get seventy-seven times back. That's our normal sinful inclination. And this passage is meant to curb that, um, An embarrassing story, but I'll tell it to you anyway. Um, When I was young, many moons ago, um, my mother went out for the evening, and I don't know where she was going. She never left us alone with our father. Um, But she did, there might have been a bridal shower or something. So I had two brothers, one close in age to me, who I usually did stuff with, and a bit of an older brother. Not sure where he was, but My brother Mark and I were home, and I I remember it was a Saturday because my dad was upstairs watching Hockey Night in Canada, watching the Maple Leafs lose. It's a hundred-year tradition by now, right? And so we were downstairs playing, and he shoved me or something, and I had a hockey stick nearby. So I, two-handed, took a full swing at him with the hockey stick. He proceeded to scream in pain. It was a small house, and so you could hear him. So I dropped the stick and ran upstairs, and my dad's watching the television, and I plunked down in the couch. You couldn't listen to the game over and above the wails that were coming from the basement. And and so my dad said, Well, what's wrong with him? I said, He shoved me. (laughs) And it's pretty apparent my dad wasn't. very involved parent, but he was bright enough to know that it didn't sound like howls of repentance coming uh, from my brother. So he he said to me, well, what did you do? I said, well, I hit him. Uh, With what? He asked. And I said, ah, the hockey stick. And he sent me to my room, which I think that's the most parental involvement I ever remember coming from my father. But in my mind, we were even, right? He shoved me. I two handed him with a hockey stick. It's okay now. We've, I've paid him back and we're all good. And that's the natural sinful inclination that we have is we want our offenses to be treated lightly. We want to overcompensate for what's uh, done to us. So this lex talionis, this eye for an eye principle is basically means the punishment should fit the crime. Um, Israel took this metaphorically and proverbially, um, which is probably what God intended. We have no record in scripture ever of the judges of Israel yanking people's twos or gouging out eyes. It was just meant to say, if there's a crime done, you weigh it and you, you make the punishment fit the crime. And so we see that God's law is just. The only thing, Remotely close to this is the Code of Hammurabi, which uh, was very contemporary to, to Moses. It's the Babylonian case law. Cynthia, you, you you probably just saw it, didn't you, or no? The Code of Hammurabi? It's in the British Museum. You didn't go to... Okay, you're in the Louvre. Okay, I digress. Um, so the Code of Hammurabi is from about 1750 B.C. and it has the Babylonian... Uh, laws on it but very different than these there was a bit of an eye for an eye kind of principle but it depended on your social standing in life so a very well to do noble person, no it didn't apply to them but if you were lower in society then by all means you were punished according to your crime also in the Code of Hammurabi there was a death penalty for theft of property so you kind of see what people valued um, but it's the closest thing to this but still kind of full of injustice we see in leviticus here that it didn't matter your social standing um, if you were a foreigner if you were uh, the king a high or low person this principle was for all and as i said it was me mean, uh, meant to be a limiting curbing thing and so you used to have lots of, well, you took my cow, I'll kill your family. That, that sort of thing happened all the time. And, and so this was meant for Israel's judges and courts to say, no, you examine an offense and you, you mete out uh, the proper discipline for it. Um, so that's the first principle we get from this, that, that God's law was a just law based on justice. Uh, Second thing we see is the high value placed on human life, so that God's image bearer is honorable. Um, Mankind is the image bearer of God, and as such, all human life was to be honored. And so uh, this goes all the way back to Genesis 9. God said to Noah, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so even in Exodus 21, for example, if an ox gored a man, you wouldn't say the ox was morally accountable, but God said you you kill that ox because it has taken the life of one who was made in my image. And so so some principles here. First, that God's law is just, but second, the crimes against humans are far more serious than crimes against your property. Uh, Crimes against people were elevated to a higher level because we were made in the image of God. The Old Testament, of course, had provisions for accidental death. Uh, There were cities of refuge, as you recall, uh, for accidental things, but for a premeditated murder. um, As commentator Jay Sklar puts it, those who destroy human life commit the ultimate wrong and therefore face the ultimate penalty. Um, The third principle uh, we see here, and uh, um, Jeff touched on this last week, is that God's name is sacred. In the Old Testament, a person's name is synonymous with that person in many ways. Not so much today. Like I mentioned, that lady's name, the mother of um, this man who had blasphemed. Her name was Shemeleth, and her name means peaceful, right? And... um, abraham for example uh, in genesis 17 god renames him and it says there god said no longer shall your name be abram which means exalted father but your name shall be abraham which means the father of a multitude for i have made you the father of a multitude of nations so a- abraham's name was who he was it represented his person um And this is especially true in the case of God. You recall in Exodus three, Abraham wants to know God's name. He says, well, tell me what your name is. And what does God say? He says, I am, I am who I am. Um, Well, God's name is who he is, right? And he's the eternal one. And so he says, my name is, my name is who I am. Um, And so when you insult the name of God, you insult the person of God Um, (coughs) excuse me if you've ever watched old westerns um, how about now there we go A sheriff might rush into a crime scene and say, stop what in the name of the law. That meant he was there. He didn't have personal authority, but he represented the law. And so he would command that a person stop in the name of the law. Um, And so God's name and his person are really indistinguishable. Uh, In Psalm 138 verse 2, God says, or it's David who says, you have exalted above all things, your name and your word. In the Sunday school class with Andre, uh, we've been studying uh, how to interpret the Old Testament. And one of the things we discovered in wisdom literature was something called parallelisms, that particularly Psalms and Proverbs, there's a lot of two line parallelisms. They'll say one thing, and then they'll say a second thing. that's really a repetition, but it just says it in another way. If, if you turn to Proverbs for a second, and we'll, we'll spend a second there. Um, Proverbs chapter one, verse five, for example. In Proverbs one, five, it says, let the wise hear and increase in learning and let the one who understands obtain guidance and you can see it's really a repetition of the same thought right? That the wise in the first part of that verse is the same as the one who understands in the second part and the person increases in learning in the first part and they are the one who obtains guidance in the second part so parallelisms say one thing and then they kind of say the identical thing in a slightly different wording well if you turn to proverbs or psalms that deal with the name of God it's quite interesting for example um, if you turn to is is it psalms or proverbs if you look in the psalms like psalm 910 for example Psalm 9:10 says, "And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you and you, so you see in this parallelism in the first half those who know he says, those who know your name in the second half it's for you, O Lord. So the Lord is parallel with his name. His name is who he is um, If you looked at Psalm 22, and if you read through the Psalms and Proverbs, you could find this repeated over and over. It says in Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. So there, once again, the name of God is really the same thing as you. It's the same as God. And so... To insult, to blaspheme the name of God is to blaspheme who he is, his person, and that's why it was a capital offense. Perhaps a further way to understand this, and Jeff brought it up last week, we often pray in the name of Christ. What does that mean? You say, well, it's easy. We say in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of prayers, and that way God answers them. That's the little magic formula for Baptists, right? Um, Not quite, right? What does it mean to pray in the name of Christ? Well, if you use that same principle, if if the name is who the person is, when we come to God and we say, I pray this in Christ's name, we're saying, I pray this because of who Jesus is. I pray this, if you really want to check your prayer life, instead of saying in Jesus name, say, God, I'm asking for this because I think Jesus would ask for this. I think this is consistent with who he is and who his person is. That would maybe change the things you pray for. God, I'd really like a Mercedes because I think, I think Jesus would pray for this, um, right? Probably not. Um, it's worth asking the question here, I think, Be- In leviticus where we see this uh, that the congregation is supposed to stone this man now because he has committed a capital crime god is perfectly capable of defending his own honor right Uh, when his name is blasphemed when there's an offense against him we saw in chapter 10 with the case of nadab and abihu he struck them down for violating his holiness in the temple by bringing strange fire. And we see Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Why doesn't God just do that when he's blasphemed? Why does he call on the nation of Israel? He doesn't say to them, hire an executioner uh, who does this. He says, bring the congregation in and they are to witness and participate in this. And, And neither does God, I think, If God had said, every time someone blasphemes my name, they will be struck dead immediately. And if that happened two or three times amongst the Israelites, it wouldn't take long for the word to get out. You know, gee, you do this and, and you die on the spot. Rather, he says to Israel, you will do this. You will carry out this. I think it's largely because... The health, the, the health of Israel going forward, their coming out of the promised land would be on the nation collectively buying in to follow the Lord with their whole heart. Um, in Exodus 19, he said to Moses, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. So therefore, the community is put in charge with preserving and protecting the sacredness of God, including his name. And so um, I think that's the reason for this prescription here. So those are kind of the three legal principles we see out of that. But those were all legal codes for the courts and for the judges, um, this passage was not a guideline for how you get your personal revenge. Um, But it had become that in Israel. Um, And if we look at the New Testament, uh, Christ gives us instructions on this. What happens when you move from the court system to your personal life? What do you do? And so if you turn to Matthew 5 uh, for that. In Jesus' time, that had... That is what had happened was people would quote an eye for an eye and they were um, becoming their own judge and jury and executioner. And that was never the point of that. In Matthew 5.38, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we need to pause there for a second Commonly when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, when he's meaning to directly quote it and show that it's an author- the authoritative word of God, what does he say? When he's tempted by Satan, he says to him what? It is written, right? If you follow the life of christ when he quotes the old testament that's his common phrase it is written it is written he says that over and over during his temptation um, in matthew eleven ten 10 when he's talking about john the baptist he says this is he of whom it is written so he's saying this guy was predicted in the old testament when he's talking to his disciples in matthew 26 about his upcoming crucifixion he says the son of man goes as it is written of him So when Jesus is quoting the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God, that's the expression he always used. It is written. Here he says, you have heard that it was said. That was a way to quote rabbinic oral tradition. So the tradition that the rabbis had passed down on how to interpret a passage. So Jesus is saying here, he says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, you have to be careful Jesus isn't saying there scripture says this but I say something different that's not his point at all he's the inspirer of scripture he's the author of scripture he's the word of god as as John tells us what he's opposing here is the rabbinic interpretation of the Leviticus passage he's not contradicting Leviticus itself he's saying you've heard the rabbis interpret that passage in Leviticus and they tell you, yes, get your revenge. See, it's there, it's an eye for an eye. So you go after your neighbor and you, you do whatever you need to do to get your justice. Um, that is not uh, the point of this at all. Um, I mean, just a few verses back in, in uh, 517, He said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. And so he's not contradicting anything in Leviticus. You recall, in fact, when Peter was arrested in Matthew 26, Peter pulls out a sword and he's going to fight these guys. And Jesus said, If you live by the sword, what? You'll die by the sword, right? If you kill someone here today, Peter, you're going to forfeit your life. Uh, That's. The law and it's a just law, and and Christ told Peter, you you know you're gonna you'll pay the just penalty for that. So back to um, chapter five of Matthew five thirty-eight, Jesus gives us a general principle there. He says, "You've heard from the rabbis that you're allowed to get your revenge." He gives us a general principle in verse 39. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Resist has to do with fighting. Um, so that's the general principle is we don't, we don't go around and fight evil people. We don't try to enact our revenge. So what do we do? Um, Jesus gives us four examples, uh, four areas where we might like to fight back um to defend ourselves to protect what we think uh, we would deserve um and those four areas are first our dignity he says do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So this is the area of dignity. A, a slap is really in the face. It's particularly insulting, isn't it? And, and really an assault on your person and your dignity. And Jesus says, don't retaliate for that when your dignity is threatened. Um, don't do that. Um, don't retaliate. Uh, 1 Peter 2.23, Peter said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus' second area that he gives us an example of is our personal security. In uh, verse 40, he says, and if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This was not someone robbing you. This was someone who had a legitimate claim that they sue you, they take you to court for your tunic. Um, and Jesus says, it's better to lose than to fight about it. So he says, if anyone sues you and uh, would take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It's better to suffer loss than to be a fighter than someone who's uh, resentful or bitter. Um, Third has to do with liberty or personal freedoms. In verse 41, he says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. There was a Roman law that said a soldier could force a citizen to carry his pack for a mile. And that's particularly offensive if you were Jewish because the Roman soldier says here, carry my arm, I'm tired, carry my armor for a mile this was the instruments of Jewish oppression and, and to have to carry a Roman soldier's gear for a mile, um, they probably would have found that particularly offensive. Jesus says, say to the guy, well, how about I go two miles with you instead? Um, go over and above, even when it's your personal liberty uh, that's at stake don't retaliate but be willing to surrender <clears throat> in order to model submission to Christ and his fourth point is property in verse 42 he says give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one uh, who would borrow from you so we should be willing to generously meet the needs of others first john three seventeen says if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So very different than getting retaliation, Jesus says we surrender what we might think are our rights in order to show that we belong to Christ, in order to act differently. You could sum that all up, 1 Peter 3, 9. Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Ephesians 4.32 says that we should forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Have you ever thought about how much you've been forgiven? we sang said wonderful songs, by the way, worship team this morning, uh, it made me think of what I was going to be talking about. Have you ever really, I, I'm an accountant, and so I do math on like just about anywhere I can plug math in, I, I, I do. And so I was, as I was thinking about this thought and trying to think about, well, how much has God forgiven me? It's, it's scary to do the math on that, by the way. Um, I just thought to myself, let's say I sinned three times a day, which is very generous, right? I'm sure I sinned three times before I got out of bed this morning. But let's say I committed one sin in the morning, one in the afternoon, and one in the evening. I'm I'm flattering myself to no end, I know by saying that. Um, So three sins a day, that sounds not bad, right? Um, And let's say I have 60 years of sinning in my life. Um, That's 65,700 sins. What would an earthly judge do with a guy who's guilty of 65,700 offenses? Um, Could you say, you know what though? I've done a couple good things. Um, Don't I get some balance there? Um, Jesus tried to illustrate this in in Matthew 18, and we'll close with this. Um, In Matthew 18, starting at verse 21. Peter wanting to be really magnanimous. Jewish law said you should forgive someone two or maybe three times uh, for an offense. And Peter wanting to say, you know, Lord, I'm... I'm way over and above uh, the average guy. It says that in verse 21, Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him, as many as seven times? You know, Lord, I'm willing to go to seven. Everyone else is two or three. I'm a seven forgiveness kind of guy. Um, And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven which would be 490, which is not to say, well, count up to 490 and then stop. It just means we always forgive, right? And and then he gives an illustration of why. And just, if your Bible doesn't have Ephesians 432 written beside it, you might want to put it in there. Um, This parable says, therefore the king of heaven or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants when he began to settle, one who was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents, and since he could not pay his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So how much is ten thousand talents? Uh, the talent is the, the heaviest unit of weight that they had in the Greco Roman world. It was about seventy five pounds. And, and it's gold. So this guy owes 10,000 times 75. He owes 750,000 pounds of gold. And of course, this is meant to illustrate sin, right? Jesus says, This is our debt to God. This is how much we owe. And not monetarily, but Paul says in Romans 5 5 that we have accumulated wrath for the day of wrath. We don't owe God money. We accumulate a debt of wrath and Jesus likens it to 10,000 talents 750,000 pounds of gold again I'm an accountant so I had to do the math on that right so I looked up well what what's the price of gold well it closed on Friday at 1770 dollars per ounce Um, so how much is 750,000 pounds I had to find something to compare it to I, I drive a very fancy Hyundai Elantra, and it weighs 2,800 pounds. So this man owed the equivalent of 268 Hyundai Elantra's made out of solid gold. That's, and Jesus is trying to illustrate, that's the debt that our sin has accumulated. So then I'm trying to figure out, okay, 268 Hyundai Elantra's. I tried to get it down to something more manageable. And I went online, four spark plugs weigh 7.8 ounces. Um, I went on and I was going to order four spark plugs from Amazon to see how much it weighed. It said 7.8 ounces. That's $18,400 for the spark plugs in one car if that weight was gold. Jesus' point is this debt is unpayable. I mean you know, 750,000 pounds. And again, I did the math. If you made a denarius a day, which was a day laborers day salary, and you gave that, you you spent nothing for your provision or your food or shelter, but you gave your entire wage to try to pay off 10,000 talents, it would take 105 million years. Our debt of sin is enormous, and that debt of sin was paid by Christ. One of the discussion questions I have for this week, and I don't know if I fully have the answer for this, but Christ hung on the cross for six hours. How do you pay that kind of debt in six hours? Praise God, you will never know. So Jesus' point in Matthew 15 is, In gratitude, sorry, in Matthew 5, in gratitude for that, can we not forgive offenses done for us? Would the world not notice people who don't take revenge, uh, who don't try to make things even? Commentator John Hartley writes, Whenever believers accept loss or suffer harm, without seeking redress, and whenever they return kindness for abuse, they promote peace among people and bear witness to the remarkable, transforming grace of Jesus. And so, uh, would you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the remarkable grace of Christ Thank you that we, if we have placed our trust in him, uh, we'll never know uh, the wrath of God. Uh, we'll never fully comprehend what Christ endured to pay for our reconciliation to you. But we just thank you for that great love. Um, we just pray that if if anyone has never Embrace that this morning, that they would do that, that they would sense the weight of their debt before you and that they would uh, run to you and embrace the forgiveness that you you offer. We thank you for that. Um, And Lord, we pray this because we believe that Christ would pray for this as well. And we pray in his name, amen.